Hi, and welcome to uh, Dr. Dark After Dark number 29. Uh, this time it's discussions with Professor Danny Blanchflower, who is at D underscore Blanchflower on Twitter. So Danny's the Bruce V. Rauner Professor of Economics at Dartmouth College, um, and as well as having ties to many other institutions. He was a member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee from 2006 to 2009. So obviously he chose a, an easy time to be on that. Um, and I, I thought I'd do some research and I, I downloaded the Excel that has all the decisions, uh, that, the votes that people <laughs> made. So Danny dissented 18 out of 36 times. But I thought what was more interesting um, was that he was the sole dissenter 13 of those 18 times. And also he, and I remember this because I was in the UK in 2007, eight, Danny spotted the crisis way before other people. And one of my favorite quotes of his is basically, what's the point of having economists if they can't forecast a recession? And he actually did forecast a recession. So um, not, there's basically no better person to have on to talk about what's going on now. He's written many books, including The Wage Curve, more recently, uh, Not Working, Where Have All the Good Jobs Gone? He's known for economics of happiness. So apparently people are most grumpy when they're 47 or 48. Um, and um, as always, this is an investment advice. Please do your own research. Danny, how are you doing? Welcome. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction. Um, I remember those years at the, at the Bank of England with horror. <laughs> it, was, uh, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was very, very difficult to be in a minority of one. I can tell you a little story, though. In around July 2008, the Prime Minister called me up and said, you're right, Danny, how are we going to persuade everybody else? And he said, one thing to tell you, even though there's a decision which is your one and everybody's eight, just remember that there's actually two views, yours and everybody else's, and everybody else is wrong, which is actually kind of encouraging from that moment, but it took a really long time for people to come around. And I was just astonished that people couldn't see what was going on. And I think the biggest thing they didn't see was what was happening in the United States was spreading everywhere else. And I think that's a good theme for us to think about in a, pande a pandemic and a financial pandemic as well. And I think they underestimated what had gone on. Mervyn King actually very often used to say that the US and the UK had decoupled and I used to think that was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard anybody say. And it was quite, it quite clearly turned out to be so. And some of it was because my students who worked in Wall Street, it turned out we're all working in Canary Wharf in the same firms in London. So it was really pretty unlikely that a financial crisis that came, you know, with subprime mortgages in the United States and into Wall Street wasn't going to come to Threadneedle Street and Canary Wharf. So I think it was a pretty sad time. And I, at the time, I just could not understand why other people couldn't see it. And in the end, they ended, people ended up saying it was my fault because I didn't persuade everybody enough, but I don't think that's fair. Right, no, that, that doesn't seem too fair. So, I mean, following from that, so if we, and if we look back to 2007 and eight, I'm, I'm really interested in basically how, how much would you talk to people and say on FOMC or in the ECB? I mean, there were people in the US like Richard Fisher, who was the president of Dallas Fed, who dissented all the time in the US, but sort of in the opposite way to you did. He was kind of saying, let's leave rates or raise them. Um, and I was wondering, did, did you really, because if, if, if Mervyn was saying, oh, well, we've decoupled, then maybe you didn't need to speak to your kind of colleagues in other central banks, or how, how did that kind of work? Well, there, there was not that much conversation going on. Certainly there were quite a lot of people who were more hawkish. I mean, there were votes in 2008 for rate rises, and in fact, if you look, I think the most astonishing thing to look at is the September 2008 minutes at the MPC of a meeting where I voted for 50 basis points of cuts. And actually, the minutes were produced on something like September the 21st. And in between the meeting and the production of the minutes, um, um, Lehman Brothers failed. And at the time, I kept saying, you can't really put this out. You can't really say this. Um, but it turns out that, that they did. So there was very little conversation. I mean, in a sense, the bank was briefing against me. That was quite clear. They were strongly briefing against my view as not being a team player. Um, and central banks, I mean, the truth is, honestly, Chris, 
that central banks missed the big one. I mean, they've never really apologized for it. I mean, if you, if you have staffs of hundreds of economists and you end up missing the biggest recession in a hundred years that I think now you look back was eminently predictable. I mean, I made speeches in January 2008 saying, it's quite clear to me from looking at the data that this is, this is the mother of all recessions that are coming and no, nobody seemed to believe it. So I think economists got into, we've got to worry about inflation. They weren't kind of interested in financial markets. I mean, these, these DSGE models didn't have a financial market model sector within them. So I think the mind was taken off the off, off really the issue, which was, you know, if you if you look back, we've had a financial crisis before. We had a financial collapse. It was called 1929, and it basically proved pretty much um, precedent for what was coming. So there wasn't a lot of discussion. Um, economists were looking at other things, playing with their models, and missed that what I call the economics of walking about. And I told a lot of stories and people would call me up and write to me and I'd go around the country and talk to people. And it was quite clear that people on the businesses and people on the street saw this thing coming and the economists didn't. And I think that what's happened is in a sense why economics is in such disarray right now is because they didn't see, the, see, they didn't see this giant recession coming. And in the decade after it, they didn't really put things right. So now we're in, now we're in a lot of trouble. But no, there wasn't a lot of discussion with people. And I felt very much alone for a really long time. And as I said, the prime minister was sort of a big backer of mine, who eventually um, things turned around. But um, being, uh, being a, the sole voter for a very long time, um, and, and in a way, who wants to be proved right when you say that the house is going to burn down and then it does? Right. And do you think, I mean, I was an academic for only three years when I did my PhD, but it was enough years, and that's not many years, to experience kind of issues of groupthink. And you know, I came up with some ideas that were a bit controversial and they wouldn't, certain referees wouldn't publish them in certain papers. And, and, and at the end of the day, a lot of, of you know, economists are obviously academics. I mean, is it a kind of similar issue in groupthink? Um, yes. And it's, yeah. Okay. Well, I think it is. And I think if you look now, um, lots of folks have been concerned about it, about the state of economics now, about groupthink. I mean, Claudia, Claudia Starm has been making very big inroads into this issue about the exclusion. It's the exclusion of outsiders in the sense of women and minorities, but also people who think differently. And there's a the whole issue about the importance of the top five journals in economics. Um, and I think what's kind of interesting is if you look at these top five journals, you might think of them as sort of insider clubs and the same, the same particularly old white men end up publishing the same lots of stuff that each of them likes. But what's really interesting is that nobody cites this work. So it's very important work to the 25 people who cite this paper, but economists end up writing papers that nobody cares about and nobody cites. And what's happened is because of that, they've lost the big think and they keep out people with very good original ideas and that's why there's a that's why there's a, a, a lot of fighting going on but take it back your economists miss the big one what have they done what are they working on i mean if you look at papers published in these journals i mean i looked at the journal of popular at the the, um, the jpe the journal of political economy and my estimates are since 2010 They've only had two papers that have been cited a thousand times in Google. Well, that's pathetic. So I think, it, I think the group think has been a major issue. Um, and I think the danger of economists, and I felt it very much at the Bank of England, all this staff, what did they have to tell me? They didn't actually tell me much of anything. They didn't seem to actually understand how the world was working. Um, and I think that was the, that was the issue. They, did, they, just, they just were on another planet. I mean, doing a, what I call it a squiggle on a diggle. A right. squiggle on the diggle is fine, but as a policymaker sitting, trying to make interest rate decisions once a month, essentially, the, the economics profession had nothing to say to me. Really right. had nothing to say to me. I mean, they tell you about, you know, the framework or something. But if you ask people, well, what's, where, where's the state of the economy now? Where's it going? What should I do on the interest rate decision? Basically, they had nothing to say, including the staff at the Bank of England and the other members of the NPC were clueless. And that's really interesting because, I mean, 
I'm sure you've probably, well, maybe you have or you haven't, but I mean, I, I've read uh, Danielle's book, Fed Up, and it paints a very similar picture yes. in the US too. Yes. Um, and, I, and it got me thinking. So look, I've been uh, an entrepreneur basically all my life. And as an exec or founder of a business, like I wanted people to not agree and to have a d- discourse that, you know, if, if we're all in an exec meeting and everyone agreed, the decision was probably wrong because it was probably too obvious. And like, you know, we were missing something. And um, I, I just, um, but having said that, having done a very short stint in academia, I kind of, you know, understood that a little, you know, wh- where some of this comes from. Um, are, there, are there any examples around the world of central banks where, you know, or maybe in the past or now where, you, you, you know, people have had a, you know, have really robust debates where, you know, several views are really entertained. Not exactly. <clears throat> I think you raise a really good point. I have a Dartmouth colleague, Sid Finkelstein, who's famous for writing about why organizations fail. And they fail because of what you just said. They fail because they don't take this alternative view. They don't take a view where they get challenged. Uh, and his, his work's all about, think of these big organizations that existed in the past and no longer exist. Um, and he, he argues a lot of it is because of groupthink. Um, that hasn't essentially been that challenge. Um, I mean, in some sense, I suppose you would argue that this time around, eventually, say if you go to the Fed and you go to the Bank of England, I took a very strong view, and you've probably seen me on Twitter endlessly saying that I thought that um, that, the central banks had no clue about the labour market, and their view was that the labour market was its full employment. And I thought every bit of evidence in the world suggested that was not true, not least because wages weren't growing. Uh, right. So they raised rates wrongly through December 2018 and forecast masses of rate rises to come. After that, with this pandemic, I mean, I do think they learned things, which is that they threw the kitchen sink and the kitchen at everything, partly because they were so close to the zero lower bound that they had really no alternative. But no, I don't think that there has been um, that, that kind of challenge of thinking. I mean, that's, we, before we started, we started to think about inflation. So here we are thinking about the importance of inflation in an economy with people who thought about things that happened in the 70s when there was an oil price shock and unions were very powerful and wage increases came and we need to worry about inflation. It's unclear to me that actually inflation is an issue. The only issue we actually have is that inflation has been too low. Turns out it was made low not by central banks but by China. And now we have no idea how to get inflation up. So why, why are we bothered about this thing where we're so worried about what will happen if inflation's high? Well, in 20 years, it's been too low. So maybe we should actually just focus on something else useful like the labor market. So I think the challenge of thinking and an alternative way of getting to things is a good idea. And the mess, an example in the UK today, I mean, we've seen this mess of where you try and, you know, we tr- they have a set of exams, they are gonna put at them, um, grades that teachers suggested would happen to their students and then they impose some old algorithm well and then it turns out to be a complete disaster so presumably somebody should have been sitting in that room going don't you think this is going to be a really bad idea don't you think this could really really mess up don't you think that this might end up with really hurting thousands of people from from poor from poorish schools um, and, and and there would be big implications for that and nobody seems to have said that and it looked to be blindingly bloody obvious that the thing that they were doing was a disaster. Right, absolutely. Well, I mean, <laughs> and being sarcastic, of course, a good job the education secretary has been fired, although they haven't. So, Yeah, although he, he actually was asked, apparently, just before we came on, I read, he was asked if he had confidence in the person who was the head of the agency that did it and wouldn't answer. And then I was asked, have you resigned yet? And he wouldn't answer it. <laughs> So, you know, stand by your beds, more information heading your way. <laughs> so, okay, so let's let, I think this inflation uh, discussion is really interesting. So one of the things I've noticed recently, um, and, um, and a good friend of the show, Steve Amida has too, who, who does, has a great YouTube channel looking into monetary policy and stuff like that. Mm. And um, 
if, if you look at, so there's a way you can kind of, as a non-central banker who only has access to the data we have access to, um, you know, we can look at stuff like M2 supply, the monetary base is updated every couple of weeks in the US. So if you divide one by the other, you get a rough proxy for the money multiplier. And, right. you know, and it basically um, has just started to tick down in the last uh, two to four weeks after spiking a little bit, but that was just obviously because of all the stimulus going ultimately into the M2. Um, and, um, and now the monetary base is going to get lower because, um, right. because the repo and the swap lines have basically been, they're, they're not really there anymore. So, um, so, so, so that had put it down, but now the monetary base will get uh, higher because the QE is going to keep going. So the money multiplier looks like it's going to keep trending down, which is of course, very disinflationary, just like you were saying. Right. And now the fed wants inflation. Uh, I assume really they want to try and inflate away debt that they can't really pay back um but can central bankers cause inflation i mean there's the kind of um you know many arguments that it they just don't have the tools to you know you create all this money that you know just kind of sits as reserves well the answer appears to be no although it's also clear i mean looking at a tweet this morning the nasdaq at a record level well, what does QE set up to do? QE, in a sense, was about raising asset prices, right? Yeah. So there are some prices that central banks have been able to raise. I mean, the stock market has returned. And obviously, part of the story I was always concerned about was that markets sensibly understood this, which was that when a shock came, which happened with the, with the pandemic, they absolutely realized that the only show in town was for central banks to step in and do more QE, which would raise asset prices. So the obvious thing to do was to sell off, you know, much more than you ever had in the past, because you knew that the, that the central banks, the only thing they could do possibly was to do asset price inflation. So obviously, then you end up with this disconnect between um, Main Street and Wall Street. And then the other thing you have to start to think about, I mean, we've, we've talked about unemployment, we've talked about inflation, but the other thing is if you have these central bank actions, then what this is going to do is it's going to have an impact on inequality because it's going to impact asset holders. I mean, if you go in and you buy, you have an impact on the housing market and on the stock market, then you impact the well-being, if you like, of asset holders, and that widens inequality. And, and Janet Yellen at the time, and, and Ben as well, worried a bit about, you know, what can we do about inequality? Uh, and that's a really big issue. But the, your point, I think, is that we've seen quite clearly in a period, certainly since, let's say, 2000, that um, although although one one thing we would say, I was going to say since 2000 we haven't really seen much inflation, but the one thing we did see, if you recall, in 2008, in, in and what threw I think a lot of other people out was that inflation in the UK, when I was voting for rate cuts, got to about five and a half percent in July 2008 because of that oil price hit. Um, so in a sense, but what it did, if you look back. What it did is it made people take their eye off the ball, which was basically the inflation was going to collapse, output was already collapsing. And in fact, if you think of it, in July 08, what these folks had not realized was that the US had been in recession since December 2007, and so had every other Western country. So I think the issue of if you focus on inflation, what you did, so the implications of it were that you looked at that, and that made you miss the fact that your economy had already gone into it had already gone into recession. So um, my my view is that um, we can't create any. Let's look away and focus on what's happening in markets, like you say. Let's look at these indicators. Let's look at the economics of walking about, which now statistical agencies have started to do. They're trying to take they're trying to take surveys this week and publish the findings in four days' time, and we're trying to get a hot feel for where the economy is. A, a survey this morning in the ONS says that. Since the since the um, pandemic and hit and the lockdown came, there's been a doubling in the proportion of people saying they're in depression. Well, the other part of it, though, still in the UK, still in the UK, we actually have no data on the labour market really from the ONS tells us much of anything from the labour force survey about what's gone on, and the unemployment rate is still the same as it was in December. So there's there's all sorts of issues about what you look at. 
But I just think for a central banker, the, the idea set up by all these economists about, you know, a 2% target of inflation expectations and all of that was a pile of dross. And it basically was a, it was a fundamental error. Right. And, um, and of course, by the way, where did this 2% number come from? I've asked people before and they're just like, well, someone just must have made it up at some point. Like, like, <laughs> I know. That's the best I answer know. I've ever got. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, why not four? Why not? Why not? I mean, obviously, I think the answer was you don't want zero, because if you have zero, then the danger is you get to some negative number. Um, I mean, the other one is why do you get to nine, for example, a nine member MPC and a nine member Supreme Court? Um, and the answer is, well, it's someone made it up and it's not seven. And it's I mean, now we're going to have probably a debate about whether that number at the Supreme Court should be 11 or 13 or something. So the answer is, I've no idea. And of course, all these people wedded to it saying we've got to be at two. I mean, Charlie Evans said things like, OK, if we've got two, what about over a 10 year period? We just average two. So, for example, if we've gone for five years when it's at one, then it's perfectly reasonable to aim for five years when it's at three. Right. That averages to two. Why not? Why not averaging two? And of course, that was far too controversial. Well, I just course, think so this is what the whole idea, yeah, I mean, the whole idea that inflation is such a big deal. I mean, I wrote a paper, I was just, just saying to you earlier, I wrote a paper when I, when, when I was at the bank because someone was so hung up on inflation. And I tried to use the well-being data. And I said, let's look at the comparative hit to well-being of a one percentage point increase in, in inflation compared to a one percentage point increase in unemployment. And the answer was the unemployment shock was five and a half times worse than the inflation shock. So when you ask people, you know, what, what does inflation do? They say, yeah, it hurts me, but it doesn't hurt me that much. I mean, the reason partly is that you should not exclude the, the fact that you've had 20 years when there hasn't been any. Clearly, when there was hyperinflation or in the, if you lived through the 70s and stuff and you saw 15% inflation and all of that, but in the last 20 years, let's focus on real things, not made up stuff. So what can we do? I mean, I was, I mean, one of my questions was absolutely all about the wealth divide, you know, and you know, the last time it was this wide was the late 1930s. And we yes. all know what happened then. Um, and let's hope that's not what's going to happen this time in terms of an actual kinetic war. But there's all sorts of other types of wars one can have now. Um, and, you know, I mean, ultimately, we need real wage growth, I suspect. But like, we, we just, well, this has been a recession where that didn't happen coming into it like it normally does, you know. Right. But I think, let's think about the issue you said. I mean, my book is very much about the fact that there's a lack of real wage growth. Um, and if you look back, real wages in the United States are still below what they were in 1970. So there has been a recent pickup. So particularly for those in the middle, not the very poorest, but you know, if you look at blue collar workers and so on, that's a really big deal. And obviously we've seen... Um, despair in that group. I mean, Case and Deaton have written a lot about deaths of despair. And I've been writing stuff about um, um, it, it, the unhappiness levels of particularly white, less educated folks in the United States. So that's a really big deal. But if you, let's go back and think about the mistake that was made. So my view was that what you, what you should have done in the United States was allow the economy to move to full employment. What would be your best indicator that that was happening? The answer is that wages and real wages particularly would start to rise. Well, they actually, they did. So the Fed from 2015 on kept saying that the economy is close to full employment, but it is a surprise that real wages aren't rising. So what they did was start to put rate increases in, even though there was no real wage growth. So what they did was real wages were relatively low and then raising rates killed those real wages off even further. So you can see that this rises levels of discontent um, and we're gonna have to deal with that. This discontent is a really big deal. The inequality is a big deal um, and the shock particularly right now, which is gonna impact the young, it might not actually be a coincidence that all these kids who have left, left school, nowhere to go, no expectations of a job, are be out on the streets in the summer. And we've seen, we've seen rioting. We've seen discontent on the streets, maybe not, not um, surprising. So the answer is we need to do something about real wages. And we certainly need to do something about levels of inequality. Um, I mean, if you look in the UK, in some sense, the, the Tory party got uh, won this election by appealing to 50 Labour seats 
that were very unhappy about what had gone on. They, they sort of voted for Brexit, thinking that this was going to deliver more stuff to them. And the problem for any government is you better start to deliver. And if you don't deliver, then what? So I think you're completely right. I think the issue for the next decade is actually about real wages, real wages for those in the middle and trying to do something to improve their lot um, and taking away health care, for example, probably isn't the way to go. So I think the well-being of those in the middle is probably the story of the next decade. And it's hardly surprising that you've seen Brexit and Trump and all this other stuff around the world, because those folks, particularly white, less educated folks who cannot, who have still not surpassed the income levels of their parents or their grandparents. And so I think this is a really big deal. And social issues are really important. The deaths of despair in the United States, which means deaths from suicide, drug and alcohol poisoning, is a really big deal. And that, and that seems to be spreading around the world. So it, this, the social disorder is, 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 is clearly an issue that we're going to have to deal with. And, and, it, and it's more, it, it isn't about inflation. It's about real wages and it's about fairness. And the one thing that people do is they compare themselves to others. And I think we have to be mindful of that kind of research stuff that I've done on behavioral economics. People compare themselves to others. And if I buy a BMW, it makes me happy as long as you don't. <laughs> right. And so, so to put it in like, because some of the listeners here are economists. And so um, in effect is what you're saying that the Nehru is actually much, much lower than exactly. what people thought. Well, if you go, yeah, I mean, if you go, um, if, if you go back to Friedman, Friedman's article on the Nehru talks about the fact that the Nehru is impacted and moves. It's not a, it's not something that sits there forever. Um, I mean, in a sense, economists have kind of thought of it as a, move, as a sort of moving average of the current unemployment rate. Makes no sense to me to think that the unemployment rates are 4% and then it goes to 10, and that means the narrows move to nine. That makes no, absolutely no sense. Right. And I think it was clear that all the things that had happened in the last decade, workers were scared, workers were, they'd seen this great shot come along, they'd lost their, they'd lost their pensions and their houses and all the rest of it, um, suggested that the narrow had fallen. And there was really very little discussion of it. I mean, I kept saying every time the Fed made these ludicrous decisions to raise rates, that the Nehru continues to fall. And then in, in, in series of speeches, Yellen, Bernanke, and then eventually um, Powell started to say, well, actually, perhaps we, under we, 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 got the, we got the Nehru wrong. And I think that's the fundamental thing that they did, which is the, 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 it's the, it's the unemployment rate consistent with you know, it, before inflation starts to take off. I mean, I wrote a paper with David Bell, it's just come out, where we showed that prior to 2008, the work I did on the wage curve was correct. The unemployment rate gave you a steer as to what, was, what the Nehru was. The lower the unemployment rate, the higher would be wage growth. We showed since 2008 that unemployment rate has, has basically has no effect on wages at all. The fact that it was at 3.9 was irrelevant. What actually mattered was the underemployment rate. So let's think about that. Uh, right. I want, yeah, so I wanted to yeah, ask about that. And this because... is going to be really important going forward. I'll just do it quickly. And it turns out that the underemployment rate, which hadn't gone back to pre-existing levels, hadn't gone back to pre-recession levels, was what mattered. And the high underemployment rate explained the lack of wage growth. And if the Fed and the Bank of England had been looking at it, they'd have realized there was much more room to expand than they actually had. I think the narrow is probably, if you take it in unemployment terms, it's probably at an unemployment rate in the twos. Right. And what's interesting on, I mean, if I use terminology, people hear, um, and again, most listeners are pretty sophisticated listeners here, like they hear things like U3 and U6 in US. And of course, every politician in his, well, sorry, every politician in power is going to quote low U3 numbers and opposition might not. Um, but like, isn't, isn't just take U3, for example. So uh, as soon as you've been searching for a job for over 31 days, you're not counted. This seems totally and utterly right. insane right. to me. And even U6 right. seems a bit odd, which in effect, they chuck you out after a year. From the, and, and, and in the well, Great Depression, statistics yeah. were counted like this, right? So um, was this just politics, the reason that it's... Well, yeah, some of it, yeah, some of it's just politics. I mean, we have in the US, we have a measure called U7, actually, 
which is that U6 has all the action from U6 is actually, I mean, I can go technical or not technical. All the action from U6 turns out to be the underemployed. So you just take out the underemployed and that's what drives everything. So it's in the US, it's, it's basically workers who say I'm part-time, but I would like to be full-time. We, we have better measures in Europe. So the listeners can sort of get to this. You ask people, how many hours do you work? Say 40. How many hours would you like to work? Well, if you say 45, that means you're underemployed. If you say 35, and some people do, then we say you're overemployed. Well, what it's turned out since 2008, this has been a huge explosion um, of people who say, I would like more hours. But what's interesting and why it turns out you have a really good explanation of unemployment, uh, sorry, of weak wage growth, is that these underemployed people are often in the same workplace as fully employed people. So in some sense, what you've seen is the, in the past, the external margin, unemployed people out there you don't know are the ones keeping wages down. Well, what we see now is people within the same workplace would like to have more hours and they're keeping down the wages of those in the same workplace. And it turns out that this is a big deal. And I think what you're gonna see going forward now is okay, furlough schemes and all the rest of it in the pandemic those furlough schemes come off and people go back to work. But what do you see? You see in a restaurant, it's got 20% capacity. You see that people have got back to work, but they used to have 40 hours and now they've got 20. So I think this is the new phenomenon that's coming. And what it means when people are unemployed and when people are underemployed, it just means their incomes are less than they would like them to be. And the reason has nothing to do with this idiocy about we can't give payments to people because they're so lazy because they'll keep them at home. That's nothing to do with it. The reason people aren't searching is there aren't any jobs. They're not searching for a job because they can't get one. The jobs are just not out there. So this is the big transformation. And it's meant that the bad thinking of central banks, because they're looking at unemployment rates, which tell you nothing. If I show you that the unemployment rate used to explain things and doesn't anymore, shouldn't you sit up and say, whoa, maybe I should look at that. And so now you have to look back. And I think it's quite clear that what we have here is a, is a normally recession, recoveries die in the United States because of a failure of the Fed. And I think that's what happened. And if you look at economies before we went into recession in 2020 March, actually economies were slowing. They were slowing in the US because of the error, huge major error of the Fed over a three year period of raising rates. And I think that we're going to pay the cost of all that. But underemployment is going to be a really big deal. And I've been writing endlessly about it. Uh, and the U.S., just, just to get to it, the U.S. has terrible measures of it. We have really bad measures. I've been trying to tell the BLS, I went to talk to them and say, here's a whole series of things you need to do. They've done nothing. And that's going to be the big issue going forward. How many hours are you working and how many hours would you like to work? And in the data, we see hours are falling fast. And presumably... When, particularly when these payments run out in the UK, the furlough scheme stops and, uh, and the help to firms stop. This is going to be a big deal and we're completely unready for it. And what has the central bank been doing about it? Nothing. Right. No, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And so I wanted to think about, okay, so let's say that, let's just be in a world where, the, the, let's say the US and let's just say where, where it's the world's reserve currency Let's make the assumption, just for the sake of argument, that the U.S. deficit doesn't really matter so much in the short to medium term. And I'm not trying to get into a whole MMT conversation here. I've got a slightly sure. different take, which is that, um, okay, so in effect, we can, let's just say print tons of money. I understand some purists don't like that term. But, okay, so what are we doing to actually make things better in the future? Like one obvious thing that came to my mind is well why wouldn't we be making a massive investment in education like because you know if we're going to have robotics and the world moving forward in a way where people don't stack shelves at walmart because a robot's going to do it there's all sorts of automation like you know either okay fine maybe maybe people ultimately don't need to work um because you know basically um we can be so efficient with with technology um or we need to kind of drastic like massively kind of upscale people into kind of um you know jobs that can't be done um but it, it just feels to me like right now there just seems to be basically central banks making it up as they go along and politicians unfortunately work on a kind of three to five year time scale yeah, right. um which means they can never think in the long run there's exceptions of course like china and some other parts of the world 
again, I'm not trying to get into that debate either. Like, I, I guess my question is like, you know, I haven't seen many great good ideas out there for what, what can be done? Like if we were kind of, you know, I don't know, the, the God of the world and we could kind of press a button. And do Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think you're, the, the investment word is a really important one. And if you think about um, government spending, I always take the view that it's not the size of that spend. It's not the size of the deficit. It's what you do with it. And I think you're completely right. I mean, in some sense, if you look back, look back to what happened at the end of the 30s. Look back at what happened in the UK from 37 on. Turned out that actually, I know there was war, but in fact, one of the big things that happened was that there was a huge increase in investment in pre-war spending, investing in infrastructure about how to build tanks and machinery and so on. So I think the story about trying to, trying to invest and give incentives to invest is a really big deal. I mean, you could think that you, you could imagine that the government's, the central bank, for example, I don't know, let's say that the central bank bought a bond that was issued to allow huge amounts of investment and it gave a trillion dollars to the National Science Foundation and to the, to the Institute of Aging or something. But maybe I can just give you an example of something that, um, in terms of education that I've been proposing this week and in fact had an impact on this thing in the UK. Let's, and the story about education is a really great one. So the story in the UK, which I mean, in the US is the same, but let's go to the UK because I've testified in the Scottish Parliament this week and um, um, the Royal Economic Society did a thing on, on exactly this. Think about 16-year-olds in the UK. So people leave school, 700,000 kids um, that now are 16, 17 each year. And of those, a big chunk of them don't go to college. What are you going to do with them? So, okay, people are furloughed. All this stuff that's going on. Do you think these kids, I mean, the numbers are very high. These kids are, um, what are they going to do? Well, maybe what we should do is actually, we were talking about this. The idea perhaps is to offer a place at university to any, I mean, university could step in here. In the UK, it looks like they've lost about 100,000 foreign students not coming to the UK from China. Maybe this is the time to start investing in young people. I mean, you could see the universities have got the capacity and apparently they say to me, we could do this if you funded it. So you could think about, let's, let's take the opportunity to start to educate these people. Civilian Conservation Corps has had a really big deal in the United States. There's a new NBR paper out about this and it showed that 3 million people actually went on that, um, that conservation corps. That was about learning to, be, to go to work and it was about planting trees and all sorts of other things but it was about investing in people and it has interesting side effects. And if you read this paper, the most interesting side effect is that now they know that the people who went on that program um, grew more than people who didn't. So they actually, their diets and stuff were better and they, and they grew and their height was higher. So I think the idea that you invest in people and infrastructure um, and think of green things. I mean, we proposed, David Bell and I wrote a thing in the UK proposing we should think of the Civilian Conservation Corps, and it could it could it could be a, a very high, it could go on the whole spectrum from planting trees, and we've investigated. It costs about a dollar a tree to plant to buy and plant a tree. You could plant lots of them, but the whole spectrum could go through very high technology things in in digital space. It could go to um, climate change. It could go to all sorts of things. So an investment in the future would be a really better idea than just um, trying to buy ETFs. So I think your, your, your idea is a really good one. And if you don't invest in the future, um, you're gonna be in trouble. And that this way, you keep these kids off the streets and you may well have an impact on their real income. But that is, as you rightly say, it needs insight, foresight, planning, and a long time horizon. But I think if you don't do something about the young people who are, who are at home now, I mean, you know, people are now, they're now going home from UNC because they tried to start classes and now they're going home. There's a lot of people sitting in their basements and a lot of young kids out on the streets. Better start doing something about it. If you don't, trouble's coming. So I agree with that, but I think the idea of investing in people is a really big thing and we are going to see much discontent if we don't. Right. And, and yeah, no, I totally agree. And, 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 and yeah, I mean, how, for how long has the US talked about doing a real infrastructure program? Like, you know, right. it would cost many trillions. I mean, 
China alone has spent, um, I think it was 10 trillion dollars. Right? I mean, but the idea that you give tax, all this stuff about we give tax cuts, forget that. Let's just think about, we'll put, we'll put 2 trillion into infrastructure and we can, I mean, I have a view like, okay, we're not sure what infrastructure to do. Take the, take the CEOs of the, of the Dow 30 companies, make them the panel and go, okay, here it comes. Which one should we do? And as I say, you could, you could imagine, give lots of money to the National Science Foundation and say to, to Apple and MIT, you come to us and propose to take 20 billion, 200 billion, and we'll start to be entrepreneurial. I think that mindset is really where we have to yeah. go. I mean, yeah. and obviously, Thing we've learned about is that actually superstar firms have a really big impact i mean in some sense i mean there's issues about the the power and control of google and apple and so on but maybe maybe they have to be the drivers of this new technology and infrastructure you know and we certainly do need new bridges right and um yeah i mean, i i it, it was a tongue-in-cheek comment i made a few podcasts ago but i said you know elon musk should do one day per month that yeah some West Coast right. University in the engineering department, right? And just like... Exactly. And we say, you say to Elon Musk, if I gave you 100 billion, we'll give you 100 billion. Go and do stuff. Tell us what it is later. I mean, that might well be a hell of a lot better thing than the, than the Fed buying, going out and buying bonds for 100 billion. Go, right. go issue a bond and give it to Elon Musk and say, you know, create things, right? I mean, that's what America was based upon. And we, and we need to overcome these capital constraints. But I mean, in a sense, go back to where we started here. You're in groupthink. You're not thinking about creative new things. I mean, that's, that's kind of where we are. And the question is, once this pandemic's gone away, are we going to go back and reinvest in, you know, realize that risk has risen? We're going to have to do all sorts of things about the healthcare system and the coverage of health to people. And what are we going to do about you know, medicine design, and are we gonna are we gonna give lots of money to to to, to pharmaceutical companies to be ready for the next one? Probably a sensible thing to do. Give them a trillion. Right, and it's interesting because you say it's a big number. I mean, I voted for something like two hundred billion dollars of QE, and I thought that was a big number. Turns out it's not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as I always joke, the world will understand what a quadrillion is soon enough. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, right. I mean, I remember us trying to think about, trying to think about, you know, big numbers. And I remember we sat thinking about how much QE should we do? Literally, and in our meeting, we sat there and we said, okay, let's try and get these numbers right. What is 1% of GDP? And somebody said it's going to be billion. And we said, well, can you, could you just go outside and write it down on a bit of paper, you know, like in pound? You write it down, and you put all the zeros there, and we can sit and we look at this thing and we go, okay. That's how much 1% of GDP is. That's probably a good number to have in your head, right? If GDP drops by 5%. You might have to have in your head that you're going to have to replace a f you know, 5% of GDP, whatever number that is. And in the US, that is a really, really, really big number. And if you, you, your spending can either blow it, which is like a giant party, which is kind of what we've had, or you can invest it. And the investment is actually it's actually certainly going to have the best longer term effects, but no one seems to be thinking like that because they're thinking about what happens in 83 days time. Right. And, and, and that's kind of, yeah, one idea I had was, I mean, you talk about, in some ways, I think politicians and central bankers now, they think they have a creative new thing, which is this whole fiscal and monetary policy working together. Right. But it's, right. Right. Which, which, and it's something that I know you've mentioned before, but like the point is, is like, okay, fine. That's okay for solving the next six months 12 months 18 months exactly. probably depending exactly. on when a vaccine comes depending which answer yeah exactly. but the point is it's that then all of a sudden we're going to be back to where we were in december 2019 exactly right and exactly. it's the same problems um and exactly. i and there just doesn't seem to be and i and i understand I, I to be fair i think the uk and us are indifferent i mean at the end of the day there's not an election in the uk coming up so yep. that's different yes. and, and and trump makes obviously everything about him so uh, you know of course the us is obsessed with the next 80 83 days whatever it is um or maybe it's going to be more than that when everyone argues about the result but um, yeah, exactly. but um, that's why i said 83 not 78 i assume there's going to be five days of argument <laughs> oh I, i'm actually assuming there'll be about five to eight weeks of argument <laughs> well, but, yeah, yeah. right exactly maybe, maybe. Um, and um but I, yeah go on uh, no go on go for it I mean, I, I do think you're right that we, 
that we start to think about what happens in the future. But I think the other thing is that this is, this, in, a, in a sense, the idea of going to investment, going to long-term things is pretty important because I hear central bankers, and it drives me nuts, I hear central bankers talking about what's coming and making a forecast. And the governor of the Bank of England said, oh, I think there's going to be a V-shaped recovery. What absolute nonsense. They have absolutely no idea. They've no idea what's coming. The right answer is, it depends. The answer depends upon a whole series of things. When do we, when do we get, uh, um, when and if we get um, a vaccine? When or if people's behavior changes in the long term? Do they stop going to X and Y? So in a sense, the only thing policymakers should say is it depends. And here are five scenarios that are plausible. We don't know which one's coming. And under these circumstances, this is what we would do. But in a sense, because of what the nonsense that they've been saying, that doesn't give people confidence about what's coming. If you say there's going to be a V-shaped recovery, I mean, come on, how do you know? So I think the idea, as you said, take some sort of long run view and try and invest in things prepares us for the future. But because, because policymakers are just being idiotic, I think when eventually this thing settles down, we won't be in any real position to be able to do much of anything. We'll be exhausted. So I think they have to plan for the long term. But, you know, to, to stand up and say, oh, there's going to be a V-shaped recovery. <laughs> Come on. You've no idea. You've no idea what there's going to be. All sorts of things could happen. So I think that, that the great issue is once this is all over, where will we be is a really hard question. And the answer to it is it depends. And you better have a whole series of strategies ready. That's what you have to do. Forget forecasting. Here's seven scenarios. And in each of them, this is what we would do if this happens. Right. And it, yeah, I agree. And it, it, it's interesting, right? Because I, I, maybe it's a good thing to end on, but it, there's kind of, um, I, I'm a glass half full guy. Um, mm-hmm. Some of my Twitter followers might not say that, but like, <laughs> I, I like to think humans are resourceful. Um, I yeah. believe in innovation. I believe in science oh. and, you know, and discussion and all this good stuff that has meant that we've done incredible things. Um, and, um, you know, maybe the point is, is that with, with such a, um, exogenous shock of what, as what we've just had, it's just not politically possible or politicians are just not capable of looking through about what we're going to do in the future. Um, but, but maybe when it's over and let's say in a year that we can all go out again and everything kind of is hunky-dory, that may or may not be the case to your point, um, maybe we just have to wait till then to have that next discussion because everything just seems to be an argument now and it seems to be partisan. I think that's very very well said. I mean, it's been a very long time since I've actually seen my kids and seen my grandkids um, and that's pretty stressful. But, you know, who knows when when this is going to be over. But go back to the economics. The economics are that you you better set yourself up for potentially a long lockdown and continuing rolling lockdowns and the potential that there's a second wave and still down the road that the mate, that this is the first of several. I mean, the, I remember the story, Oli Ashenfeld is a great friend of mine, used to be the editor of the American Economic Review who's worked on wine. He's a great expert on predicting what's happened on wine. And I recall that he said, he, he made these estimates, which is that the Bordeaux, I think it was 2000, was the once in a hundred year event. And then he said, wow, what happened in the next year is the next year was a once in a hundred year event as well. And you can't rule that out, right? You can't rule out that, you know, these things come. So you probably should be changing your, your risk appetite and preparing yourself for the possibility that, you know, another pandemic comes in a year's time. You can't rule it out. And the fact that you've had a once in a hundred year one doesn't mean the next year you can't have another one. So I think, I think that um, your idea, of course, that in a year's time, we, we hopefully this is over. But I think the answer is that what people haven't really understood is that there may, may potentially be long-run behavioral changes. Are people going to save more? Are they going to invest in you know, healthcare more or long-term care differently? And are they going to stop going to the mall? I mean, a third, I mean, Nick Bloom, professor at Stanford, I heard this great British accent on CNN this week, and he says a third of people now in America are working from home. That may not change. There's an example. Why would that necessarily in a year's time change? 
people like it, people may stay up. That's a fundamental change that's going to have an impact, particularly on the inner city. If you're working from home, you don't have to, I mean, you don't have to live in your city. You can live in your, you can live in Vermont. You can live in Hampshire, where I am. So I, th I think the preparation for normal is fine, but it's going to be a, a new one. And I think the big deal will be, are people going to change their behavior? Are going to save more? Are they going to not go to the mall? Are they going to work from home? Are they going to, you know, do all sorts of different things? And I think that's what we should be trying to understand. Right, exactly. And I guess that's some of my, what I was trying to get at is when I have hope for the future that, you know, from, from adversity comes opportunity. Um, yes. if, if everyone doesn't, I mean, look, in the UK, I mean, I, I used to work in London, right? And I yeah. lived in central London because I, I didn't <laughs> want a crazy commute. Right. But I, I worked with people that commuted two hours in and two hours out every day. And this was back in 2005, six, when it wasn't so easy to be online. Yeah. Yes. And I was like, you're nuts. And, and you know, now they did it because they wanted at the weekends as well to be you know, in the country and, and all of this. But, um, you know, it's um, it, from to, to your point, again, it may just need a bit of time to, to, to flow. Um, well, look, at this. look at what we're doing here. You're sitting in Hong Kong, I'm sitting in New Hampshire, and it's seamless. It's utterly seamless. You know, there's a time difference, but we can wing that. Who would have thought it? My daughter and son-in-law, my son-in-law's Scottish, and my daughter, and they were in North Carolina working in the, in the, in the research triangle, and they decided they didn't like things there, and they've gone to Scotland for a year. And they're working from Scotland, working seamlessly, working online. Um, that's, that's the new world. And the question is, I mean, it's going to have all sorts of implications. You don't need, I mean, I haven't been to my office at Dartmouth, I don't think, this year. I don't think I've actually been this year. Of course, what I didn't tell you at the beginning was this is a recording of me and I'm sleeping. <laughs> exactly. Just like the Michelle Obama speech. <laughs> why she did, why, people came out this way. Why didn't she mention that? Uh, the vice president nominee is Kamala Harris. And the answer was, well, she recorded it before the announcement, silly Billy. So yeah, there is that. <laughs> There's a recording thing and it's like, make a big deal of it. Well, the really big deal was she recorded it two days before. Duh. <laughs> well, Danny, I, I know you've got to dash to another, another thing. So um, thank you for your time. And look, and you know what? You might be able to get more fishing time as well. If uh... Yeah, I, well, this, this year in New Hampshire, the fishing's been bad and I'm batting, what's the thing? Over a thousand or something. So the fishing has been bad up here. I have to go back to Florida again. Good right. I, I, I was wondering where you, because there's a lot of pictures of you online with very big fish. So uh, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're in Florida and other places, including in uh, Canada. But uh, the fishing stopped too. Think of fishing, actually fishing in Florida stopped because the fishermen, what they do is somebody comes on a plane from New York, gets off the plane and goes fishing. So the fishing guides stopped because people stopped coming and they got worried about that. So actually it's decimated fishing in Florida because fishermen, you know, they're, they're, the, the captains can't expose themselves. But that should mean there's more larger fish next year, right? Well, maybe, 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 we don't know. Maybe the fish will be much better when no one's been catching them, but you don't know the answer to it, right? Go back to the forecasting model. The answer is it depends. Right. right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. I better oh, update no. my Excel model on fishing. So, yeah. Get your Excel model on fishing, and in a year's <laughs> time when the fisheries open, we'll come back and I'll tell you. <laughs> All right. All right, Daddy. Thanks very much for your time. Let's leave it there. Thank you. Bye.